Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, and today we're going to talk about alcohol use on campus. Uh, with us in the studio today are three guests. Indiana University Dean of Students Richard McKegg is here, the president of the CARES Board in Bloomington, Monroe County. Jennifer Staub is here, and Indiana University Police Department Operations Captain Keith Cash is with us today. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Welcome. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us. I think many return visitors here today Mm -hmm. and, and a return topic. We can probably talk about alcohol use on campus probably more often than we'd care to. But uh, so, what are what are the uh, the the expectations for this first weekend that the students are here, Keith? Uh, I would say it's going to be pretty typical of all our previous years. Mm-hmm. Not to be boring, but uh, <laughs> it's nothing we haven't seen in the past. I mean, about the same. Uh, even if you go look at our you know arrest statistics, if you're one of those folks that likes to look at those, they're pretty consistent year after year. So I would say that it's going to be pretty average of. Some people home away for the first time, chance to party and think they won't get arrested. Some will, some won't. Some will get uh, some hospital runs. And uh, so it's just consistent with what we've dealt with in the past. Mm-hmm. OK. Dick, do you have any uh, any thoughts about this first weekend, particularly since the first – this is a, a weekend without classes on Labor Day? Weekend without classes on Labor Day. Well, I'd like to uh, emphasize uh, – the positive things I expect to be happening this weekend, like this afternoon, uh, our students showing up in Assembly Hall in large numbers to celebrate sport at IU, and tomorrow I hope a very large attendance at the football game to cheer on our team. We have a community service uh, day planned on Monday, which will involve lots of students. Uh, Keith's right. There will be students who will make mistakes, but uh, out of 38,000 students, my hunch is we'll have a very, very, very small percentage that will make mistakes uh, but we're focusing on those, I guess, today. Yeah, and they're the ones we're here to talk about. Right. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> That's not really fair, I guess. <laughs> Jennifer, could you talk a little bit about CARES and what, what the CARES Board does? Sure. Um, the CARES Board has been around since 1987, I think, um, and it coordinates all the justice, treatment, and prevention aspects of the community in regards to alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs. There's 21 members, and our whole goal is to reduce the harmful effect in the community, which includes IU. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, it, it is true. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back to what Dick said. It is true that there are a lot of uh, students who are coming into town, and we don't want to uh, paint them all with the same brush or anything of that nature because uh, there's so many good things that the students bring to campus when they come back. But it is a fact that uh, alcohol use and alcohol abuse is a is a major concern on college campuses. We just had uh, some stories in the media about the Amethyst Initiative, which is um, a lot of college presidents trying to look at how to how to deal with this problem. And I know there was some misreporting of it, at, at least at first, about how the, the presidents were – 100 presidents or more had signed on to this. Let's reduce the drinking age to 18 from 21 when in fact they said let's open the dialogue if I recall. Dick, do you think that you – know, what, what, what good would be done by opening the dialogue to discuss – you know, maybe lowering the drinking age or what other strategies could you see that would help? Yeah, I, I think it would be very appropriate to open the dialogue about what we're doing to address abusive drinking by students under the age of 21. In fact, for that matter, of course, all students. Um, I don't know focusing on 21 uh, is as productive as some might hope because it, it it sort of suggests that there's something about the age that is the most significant cause for the alcohol abuse we face and, and in reality, it's a factor uh, but it's by no means the only factor and it may not change the problem at all and it could make the problem worse to reduce it. Uh, but there's certainly good reasons to talk about uh, what's happening in alcohol and there's some reasons to be positive. Uh, Jennifer, I'm sure, can tell us about some of the initiatives that have been going on in high schools and grade schools and there's some data to suggest that the student populations coming to us are less experienced and less uh, alcohol-soaked, if you will, uh, than the generations that have been here before. And so I think progress is being made. The reason we ought to talk about it is if you look at the college data, though, over the last 10 years, all the initiatives that have been undertaken, there haven't been really significant changes in behavior. Uh, we have modest improvements in certain areas, uh, but we haven't made significant progress. And, and quite frankly, the significant progress might come because of initiatives uh, like folks like Jennifer are involved in that are really bringing a new look to alcohol 
in the age group when they may be most impressionable. Mm-hmm. Does anybody know historically why 21? Why not 22? Why not 19? How we happen to settle on that number as the, the, age, the drinking age? I think it must have been related to just the age of majority mm-hmm. uh, and so 21 was reasonable. And there were some states that had a lower age because alcohol was more involved in their culture and you graduated from high school at 18. And mm-hmm. Indiana had been 21 for as long as I can remember and that's 60-some years. Uh, so we didn't go through that change that some states uh, talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it, uh, it is confusing, I suppose, if we say 18 is the age of majority for this but for drinking it's that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so there is an inconsistency there. But there's also new research coming out about brain development that might suggest uh, uh, that the age of 21 is, is more realistic uh, than, than the arbitrary um, date 21 that was established several years ago. Mm-hmm. Bob, growing up in Winchester, did you make that, uh, that drive over to Ohio? <laughs> I hope your mom's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> she knows all about it. Um, no, I mean Dick's point is a, is a good one because when I was growing up, Ohio had an 18 18- year old drinking age for three two beer mm-hmm. Michigan I believe you could drink anything when you were 19 mm-hmm. 18 or 19 and then if I recall the federal government got together and said we're going to make it 21 if you want to get these highway funds mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. and it seems like a sane thing to do to not have different states because that just puts mm-hmm. people on the highways driving you know, to go get driving it. to That's go exactly. get alcohol mm-hmm. right. and the data does show since everything went to 21 that the deaths have gone down so the data supports it uh, but there is a lot of inconsistencies, particularly when people say you can go fight for our country, which mm-hmm. can't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the argument that by um, you know, uh, isolating kids in a situation where they, they have to go hide to drink, um, you're actually doing them a disservice by not making it more of a, a social uh, – having them drink in a social setting where they're surrounded by adults um, and who are actually then kind of tempering the behavior just by their presence there. How do, how do you respond to, to that argument? I, I think it is true that, that you generally get kids who go drink somewhere else so that they can – hide and then drive to get there and drive mm-hmm. to come back. And even if the drinking age was back down to 18, we would still experience that at the high school level, um, which is what I deal with mostly. Um, and, and I guess in all of this, one of the thoughts that I've had is that nothing in the current law prohibits parents from teaching responsible drinking. So I think that's an interesting part of this, of thinking about, you know, if lowering the age is just really about teaching responsible drinking, Right now, that could be a parent role that isn't that isn't ob, uh, often talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't right now because of the law teach responsible drinking. Um, but I think it's a piece that that it hasn't been talked about very much. Mm-hmm. We're talking about underage drinking today. Our, our three guests are Dean of Students Richard McKegg from Indiana University, Jennifer Staub, who's the president of the CARES Board, and Keith Cash, who's Indiana University Police Department's operations captain. Um, if you have questions, please phone us 855-0811-877-285-9348 and you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Jennifer, what are some of the programs that you uh, have seen be effective in the, the age group that you work with? Well, um, we started 10 years ago getting rid of any drug prevention program that we didn't have research behind it to prove effective. So we switched away from DARE and Bloomington Police Department was willing to switch with us away from DARE and go to life skills, which had lots more research and showed that it it truly did change drinking and, and use habits. And we've seen our own local data that that bears out that we have less um, drinking and drug use than we had 10 years ago. Um, that doesn't mean that our level is acceptable and we still are <laughs> above state and national averages. But we've gone down in greater percentages than state and national averages. Um, and, and then the other piece, we just recently received an alcohol prevention grant and, and I think we got it because we were able to pull out and really target populations. We know our general population uses more than state and national. Then we looked at athletes and we saw they use more than the general population. And then we looked at students who say they miss 10 days of schools. They report using more. And then athletes who miss 10 days or more of school, they should just go straight to treatment. (laughs) It's close to 70 percent of those students use on a regular basis.
Um, so with that, we were able to then get programming to target each of those groups directly. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes a bigger difference than just these kind of general statements that you say don't do it. And, and to be uh, more specific, when you say use on a regular basis, I mean people that drink every day, drink three or four times a week? Um, the definition we use is within 30 days. Okay. So we use a 30-day measure. And we can break it down smaller and find out weekly. We can break it down smaller and find out daily. Mm-hmm. And, and the percentages clearly go down. But we feel like if you're using in the past 30 days, Okay. And we stay away from spring break as that measure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And how does life skills um, differ from D.A.R.E.? What, what's the different approach? Um, D.A.R.E. used to be here's the drugs. Here's what it does to you. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, life skills doesn't get into the effects. And, and D.A.R.E. actually showed in some studies that it increased use. And so life skills talks about how you make decisions, how you figure out your own personal values in relation to your family values, how you resist peer pressure, how you communicate your decisions. So it's really about life skills, decision-making, communicating, and how media influences you and how you can kind of sort through the media messages. Mm-hmm. And less about here's the drugs. Yeah. You know, less the Nancy Reagan approach. <laughs> okay. I do know that when, uh, you know, some of some young people that I used to be around a lot, my stepdaughter and some of her mm-hmm. friends, a lot of young people who were probably drinking and using drugs, wore those D.A.R.E. t-shirts. It was just sort of – you could sort of tell that it was <laughs> kind of <laughs> – No comment. Right. <laughs> right. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to Bill. Bill? Hello. Hello, Bill. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I haven't heard too much in the discussion about uh, the, the culture of alcohol with students and the culture that promotes drinking and of particular concern to me is what happens up at – uh, surrounding Memorial Stadium on game day. There's a lot of alumni and parents getting drunk up there and, and other yahoos, and then they get in their vehicles and, and they head home after the game. Uh, how does the university feel about that? Does it, doesn't that, that not uh, give conflicting students, uh, I'm sorry, uh, signals to students? And also uh, the university licensing the use of its name, the interlocking insignia IU, to appear on uh, beer uh, poster. So it's licensing the use of his name to brewery companies. First it was Budweiser, and, and now it is, it is uh, Miller Lite. And you see those in convenience stores and uh, student bars, particularly the Kilroy's bars and, and all liquor stores. Uh, I'd like to hear you comment on that, either one of you. Uh, I asked President McRobbie about that, and, and he said he wasn't even aware that that was going on. I'll hang up and, and listen to your answer. Thank you. Okay, Bill. Thanks a lot. Um, good questions. Good, good questions, and I frankly agree with the caller and probably have a string of memos that uh, have issued during my time as dean to suggest that there are real issues here. The, 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 there is no question the culture of alcohol contributes to the alcohol abuse in the age group that are in college. Uh, in fact, any any realistic policy to try and or approach to try and reduce alcohol has to start with the with the whole culture. And usually, uh, people, and that was one of my comments about why discussing just the drinking age probably isn't the issue, uh, because it's that culture that creates the anticipation that when you get to college, that's what you do. Uh, we have a survey of students that was last spring that uh, asked them uh, to what extent does the uh, culture of alcohol at IU, uh, how much does IU student culture encourage irresponsible alcohol consumption? And some folks will probably be shocked to see that about 50 percent of our students say, yeah, there is an irresponsible culture about alcohol. Uh, we need to find ways to kind of capture that student energy. Uh, I'm just not, not reading a study now that came out today that talks about uh, uh, the percentage of students who think there's nothing you can do about it, obviously a pretty hard car drinking crowd if you look at their use of alcohol, the percentage that think they're – which is a rather large group that thinks you could do something about it and we need to capture that group to help us. Uh, but it's not only uh, drinking at the stadium. It's the number of bars in a community. It's the number of ads in a newspaper uh, about alcohol and the minute I say that, someone will remind me about free press. I mean, it just – our culture – I think it's estimated that about 11 percent of the alcohol industry profit comes from underage drinking. Uh, so we have, a, we have a legal business interest that is making a percentage of its profit off of illegal use. Uh, and so the, the alcohol culture is, uh, is a significant concern. And usually when I approach any element of the culture to raise the question, they will say, well, 
I understand your point, but making a change here won't really solve the problem. And in that sense, they're right. Uh, it won't solve the problem. But of course, they all use that to me and I have 10 <laughs> conversations and if the 10 of them together would take the step forward, we might make a change. But they each individually tell me, well, you know, uh, we're being competitive with other schools and we have to make an attractive game day environment and of course it is legal for those of age to drink and – uh, and one of the ways that we're able to support a vast support sport program is to realistically deal with individuals that market the sports program. And, and the litany of excuses, and I have them from the newspapers uh, and I have them from the bar owners in town, are all logical, reasonable statements. Uh, a nice broad dialogue about this issue would be very helpful because we all are contribute to the alcohol culture. Yeah, if, go ahead. I was say, if I could just comment sure. also uh, – and echoing some of what Dick said, it's and it's not unique to here. Our brother and sister universities of like size, we speak with all the time, and it's certainly not unique here. It's not unique when you get to any sports culture, professional football, et cetera, uh, and that's one of the arguments. But but I would at least tell the caller that it is not like we turn a blind eye. When I go talk to student groups, I'm very candid with them. I said I know there's large numbers there, and you look like you can get lost in the crowd, but. It, that's not really accurate. We do heavy enforcement in that little postage size, size stamp of land that if you're going to be there underage, you're probably going to get caught and be arrested. So most of the ones we arrest, it's usually they're either under 21 but a lar- large part of people that are, are the legal drinking age and they're just there partying. Mm-hmm. What kind of uh, enforcement force is there uh, around Memorial Stadium on game days? Well, Every one of our officers are working. In addition, we use uh, Bloomington City Police Officers, Indiana State Police Officers, and Monroe County Sheriff's Department. Uh, excise Police, which does alcohol enforcement solely, uh, are typically in, in plain clothes, and they're wandering throughout that what would you want to call it the tailgating lot. Uh, they're there. We have roaming teams of officers as soon as the gates open. They're doing nothing but going through in uniform and enforcing, make sure people are of age. And that nobody's too intoxicated, because if you don't do it early, you have a crowd of twenty-five that turns into fifty, that turns into two hundred, and you throw a football and hit somebody else, and the fight's on. So we we hit it pretty hard, and there's a good number of officers in there mm-hmm. policing it. Yeah. How, how obnoxious do you have to get in order to <laughs> seriously <laughs> in order to get to, you know targeted? It, it's going to be somebody that you can just uh, you know all, the, all our officers are well trained and we get a lot of our equipment thanks we, through CARES board like PBTs and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But we do our, we do training uh, with alcohol with all our officers so they know the signs to look for and it's not the one who's just sitting there bothering no one. It's someone who's truly drawing attention to themselves. Now, what if uh, an under twenty one year old person is drinking with their parents under their parents' supervision? Are they still? Can you still arrest them? A good question and it is an awkward scenario and I think it's back to what we were talking about with, with folks educating. But uh, usually our officers are looking for not, not just a mom and dad and a kid. I mean it's mm-hmm. usually like I said something larger. But I do know excise has gone up and cited a mom and a dad and a kid and it was just the scenario you described. It It is still against the law. I, I'm not saying you know personally agree with it or not but, but yeah, they can still be cited regardless. We've had parents that have left beer in their dorm room for their – yeah, even though they weren't 21. So I mean it was – it's I guess a parent choice. Hmm. You know, Bill brought up two different two different points and, and Dick, you really addressed both of them but we've been talking mostly about the, the culture and the scenario on campus. But um, I was surprised when I walked into uh, Chili's actually, uh, you know, sort of a family place and I saw pendants around the bar that had light beer and Indiana University, the trademark um, – the trademarked symbol of IU and – Maybe I've been just naive and missed these, this over the years, but that seemed new. Is it new to have the, our, the IU logo licensed to a it's, beer company? I don't know that it's new this year. I at least two years wrote, a year ago wrote a memo on it uh, and it's my understanding it, it, it happens in relationship to a outside firm that has marketing rights for um, – intercollegiate sports radio and television events. I believe it's called Learfield Sports if they're still the contractor and uh, and it's part of their sports promotion package which they have rights to do given their contract. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, it's an issue that uh, – But the university that, has to sign the contract with, with Learfield. Learfield. That's mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. OK. Well, that just seemed a little odd to me. We had an email that came in. Um, it says, why does the problem of alcohol abuse in college seem to involve white students more than non-white students? 
Dick, that'd probably be you. Maybe you can. Yeah, I was, I was somewhere in front of me is data that uh, that talks about that. I don't know uh, uh, precisely that I have a good explanation. Uh, is the assumption true? The assumption is not a hundred percent true. Uh, and I was, what I the data I can't find my hands on right now has to do with it breaks down each of the races, and it's not. A, it's not true if you're looking at each of the races. But uh, I don't know if it's an economic issue, if it's a family uh, background issue. Um, the presumption that uh, there's no drinking in certain uh, minority communities would absolutely be false. Uh, but uh, I don't know that I have a good explanation other than possibly peer pressure and peer expectations. And, uh, and that's, of course, what we would want to activate across other groups too. Mm-hmm. All right. The phone numbers again, 855-0811, and noon at indiana.edu. Um, following up on that, and, and, and I know that the stereotype would probably be that fraternities are places where a lot of drinking goes on and possibly sorority houses, a lot of drinking goes on. I know you've had a lot of efforts to try to work with fraternities and sororities. How are those efforts working? Well, I think we've made some progress in, in sorority houses, quite frankly, uh, I think, I could say pretty with certainty that uh, there are no alcohol events in a sorority house. Uh, the party atmosphere is in the fraternity house. Now, that's not to suggest that every sorority woman on our campus in the privacy of her own room observes Indiana University regulations. I'm not that naive. But in terms of the big events, no, they're not in sorority houses. Uh, the progress with fraternities uh, has uh, has been good. I think some in the community would want to remind me very quickly that uh, our efforts have moved alcohol as opposed to eliminating alcohol use. And we're certainly aware of that and work with the city police also uh, to try to address those issues. The solution isn't, of course, in my mind for us to ignore it so that there's more. Uh, The solution is for both of us to address it together. Uh, Many of our men's fraternities uh, in reorganizing in the past few years because they've been closed by the university or the national organization organization have come back with a, a commitment of no alcohol in the house. They are very serious about that. They are some of our best organizations. Several national organizations have made efforts in those directions. Others have made efforts to simply say uh, we'll observe the university regulations but we will absolutely require the law be enforced. And so I think we are making some progress. Uh, but if you look at my data, you would see that indeed members of fraternities and sororities drink at greater quantity than do non-members. And again, it's a reinforcement of that culture. It's a, it's a culture thing that uh, creates an environment and an expectation which people live down to, I guess, would be the way to say it. Are the fraternity – I know there, there was some time in the past when fraternities uh, were renting houses off campus to use for parties. Is that still happening? Well, technically, uh, the, the technical answer would be no, it doesn't happen and it didn't happen then because fraternities the, – the, a fraternity house is owned by a house corporation uh, legally registered in the state of Indiana and I can assure you that house corporation is not renting property off campus. Right. Five seniors uh, who are moving out of the house are living in the same house and I think that continues to happen. And in that sense, uh, our data on where students drink, uh, the majority of students drink in bars in Bloomington. Uh, the the second highest frequency of drinking is apartments off campus. Then you get to the campus environments and, and part of that, of course, has to do with the supervision that goes on in our residence halls and the supervision that uh, still exists at a different level in our fraternity houses. Uh, so uh, in, terms of, uh, uh, in, in terms of fraternity houses off campus, technically there are not fraternity houses off campus. You have students who are living in houses who are also members of fraternities. In that sense, I suppose you could say there are Democrats off campus uh, that have parties <laughs> and there are Republicans off campus that have I'm parties. I'm sure so, that's true. Yeah. Probably journalists off campus. Journalists off yeah. campus. <laughs> College of Arts and Science majors. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> All right. I, I think it's a good time for us to take a break. I, I'm anticipating a lot of calls and a lot of emails in the second half of our program. We're talking about uh, underage alcohol use use. Uh, our guests today are Richard McKegg, the Dean of Students at IU, uh, Jennifer Staub, who's the President of the CARES Board, and Keith Cash, Captain Keith Cash, who's with the Indiana University Police Department. If you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. 
Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Movie Play and Opera Reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Um, I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we're talking today about the use of alcohol among young people. Um, Indiana University Dean of Students Richard McCagg is our guest along with the president of the CARES Board, Jennifer Staub, and Indiana University Police Department Operations Captain Keith Cash. Mary Catherine Carmichael is here. We were laughing during the break. (laughs) You you caught us. We came back too early. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 and you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Keith, you were talking about your dealings with the fraternity houses. Uh, Yeah. A number of years back, uh, we had not a real good working relation. That's something I wanted to change. And so I started meeting with them and basically wanted to have very candid conversations. You know, I told them I'd treat them as adults and I may give them answers they don't want to hear, but at least be respectful and listen to the answer and we we could agree to disagree. And it's worked out really well. It's not to say that there's Less partying, but but I think they're they are they are very responsive. When we mentioned like there's binge drinking the first week of school, and there were a couple of ambulance runs. They all met, got together, and I'm not saying they said we're not going to all drink, but but those numbers immediately went down. So I, I think they are a responsive group trying to do the right thing, knowing that they're in like Dick said the culture of that's one of the things you know you do in a fraternity. But they they made some of the candid arguments they made were, were some of the ones we mentioned earlier. Is that you're pushing it elsewhere, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying this is to condone that you drink in a fraternity. And uh, Nick would probably right. have comments about that as well. But but it is. I mean, they made some very good arguments, like I said, and I think they are trying to be responsible. Well, what about the argument from from citizens who say, you know, I'd rather they were drinking at the fraternity or you know somewhere else on campus because then they're already among their peers and they're you know they can pretty much walk to wherever they need to be in order to interact with their peers and and you know that's kind of what it's all about anyway. And so. You know, let's just say, okay, this is a safe environment. Let's keep you safe. Let's keep you in one place. Well, it's frankly not that safe. Uh, I'm sad to say that at Indiana University, we've had student deaths related to drinking in a fraternity house and nationally, of course, there have been. Uh, It's not that safe because drinking in a fraternity house doesn't mean you don't get on the road late at night to go to White Castle or it doesn't mean you don't run out of beer and decide to get on the road. It doesn't mean that somebody doesn't decide to move the party. To address the culture, we need to address the alcohol abuse wherever it is and we have to acknowledge that sometimes even our best intent uh, has unintended consequences and then we have to be prepared to deal with those. It's kind of like squeezing a balloon. Yes. And by by, uh, definition, everybody in fraternity house, not everybody will be over 21. That's correct. correct. That's correct. And in many of our fraternity houses, uh, the number of seniors living in is relatively small right now. Mm -hmm. All right. We have a phone call. Andy is next. Andy? Hello. Hi, Andy. I went to the University of Buffalo in 1954 and uh, got involved in going down the street to Brunner's Cafe and singing drinking songs and getting drunk and going to fraternity parties, which they had in big halls. You know, they'd rent a hall, an American Legion Hall, and have a big dance and party. And uh, one time they even had a, a bathtub they filled with your entrance was uh, requirement was a bottle of vodka or gin and a bottle of grape juice. They called it Purple Jesus. So people got drunk a lot. But the thing I noticed was that people that were 16 and 17 thought it was a real big thrill to have somebody buy a six-pack for, for them so they could drink early, you know. 
And uh, when I got to Indiana University, I found it an entirely different situation. Uh, by the way, I visited Cornell University, and they have drinking on campus. You know, beer is available in the cafeteria. And I thought, well, that's pretty, pretty interesting. And people weren't as thrilled about drinking when it was available all the time. And I think the University was amazed to find people 20 years old having a big thrill, having somebody buy them a six-pack of beer so they could drink illegally. And it seems like what they do by having a drinking age 21 instead of 18 is they extend the immaturity three years. It's kind of an interesting point. And uh, so this, this immaturity, people get all excited. I can have some beer, you know, if I get it illegally. But uh, when they get legal, <laughs> they lose interest. So uh, would you comment about that, please? All right, Andy. Thanks for, thanks for calling. Bye. Well, it's interesting. I began my career working in Wisconsin, and when I was in Wisconsin, the drinking age was 18. And the one thing that it does allow you to do is change the dialogue to alcohol abuse from illegal use, uh, at least in the college environment. There are high school issues then uh, that Jennifer suggested becomes a real issue too. But it is true that there was – uh, there, there was abusive drinking in Wisconsin when I was there, but, but we were working with a peer culture that was more willing to address abusive drinking because it, nobody, of course, abusively drinks. Even the alcoholic will tend to say he doesn't drink any more than anyone else. Uh, so the issue becomes uh, those students who, uh, as long as they think you're not taking their beer away, might be willing to engage in a conversation about um, – abusive drinking and ways to stop abusive drinking and creating a culture that sends negative messages. College cultures now and student cultures in general tend to make fun about. Remember that night that I got or the writing on the body while the person's passed out? All of those cultural things that go on uh, seem to encourage underage abusive drinking. Uh, that, so the caller's right. It certainly that is that is a potential advantage. There are there are many many other issues that should come into it, but certainly that's a part of it. And the latest study I've seen, which again won't surprise the caller, uh, students under the age of twenty one drink less often in increased quantities once they turn twenty one. Frankly, they drink more often for more frequently for a period of time but in lesser quality quantities. Mm-hmm. I, I read a, a story this week. I, I think it might be a, a new survey about the 21st birthday and the amount of drinking that goes on on a 21st birthday. And I think the story I read, if I remember right, I think it was in USA Today, talked about how in the survey, the average number of drinks of a person turning 21 was 12 among males and 9 among females on a 21st birthday, which seemed exorbitant to me. Is that the, an, an experience that you think is consistent uh, through well, Indiana? It, it's certainly something I hear about. You'll find some of our uh, uh, bars in town who are very much concerned about that and will take special care to identify who's 21 and the person being identified probably feels it is out of a sense of customer uh, appreciation, but it's also liability protection because they're paying very close attention to that individual who might have reasons in their culture to drink more than they should. At the same time, uh, uh, we've had uh, an educational program, and again, this may sound insignificant, but I'm trying to ask people to think in the cultural sense of sending happy birthday cards to people who are about tw- to turn 21, reminding them to be careful and giving them some information about alcohol and alcohol abuse. So uh, that's uh, – that's an, it, is, it is a part of the culture. It's pretty hard when you're invincible to yes. get through mm-hmm. to people who are invincible. Yeah. I want to follow up on what Dick said. One of the things that CARES has funded before for IU is little cards that they hand out that are signs of alcohol poisoning. Oh, yeah. And it's got one side has the signs on it and the other side it has what do you do because I know the hospital has experienced – pulling up and dropping them off and running. Um, and, and we've we've talked with the emergency department before about the increased levels of um, visits they get there, particularly in the weekend before school starts, which would be um, this weekend. And then they also hand out things right before spring break because that's the other mm-hmm. peak time. And then Little 500. Those are the, those are the three big times for alcohol abuse. Um, but the 21st birthday would be the one that follows, you know, in timing with the individual. Mm-hmm. What are the signs of alcohol poisoning? Well, I don't have my little car right in front of me. Unconscious. Yeah, unconscious. Dick's got—he's reaching for something there. Uh, he's got right. one on. Oh boy! Yeah. I usually carry well, it with I, me. No, I just have always wondered. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, at, 
Yeah. Oh, there it is. Now I just laid my glasses down to show. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. That's not um, let's see. Signs of alcohol poisoning. How to help a friend. Try to wake your friend, and if your friend does not respond, there may be a serious problem. Listen to your friend's breathing. Is it irregular, too slow or shallow? And check your friend's skin. Is his or her skin pale or blush, or is it cold and clammy? If any of those occur, take action. Dial 911. Stay with your friend while waiting, and make sure your friend is lying on his side to prevent choking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it... In terms of, of uh, you know, alcohol abuse like that for, for alcohol poisoning, other related issues, I mean, drinking to excess can cause you to die. I mean, we know that. Dick mentioned that earlier. But then there are all sorts of related activities that come along with drinking that are other good reasons not to, to become out of control. Um, Keith, you want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right because obviously we, we really don't despite what some students think, we don't go out of our way to look for somebody who's just underage drinking and doing nothing else. It's pretty much attention is drawn to individuals uh, and you're, they're the, a whole host of them. Some of them are vandalisms, criminal mischief. You know, somebody's walking home drunk and they decide they have to rip a sign out of the ground for no reason but to carry it around. And so these things draw attention you know, to that individual. So we have more vandalisms, uh, more batteries, and those are pretty much associated with the excess of drinking. Let me just quote some national statistics from the core survey. And some of them, everybody's going to say, yeah, that's funny. Isn't it? I had a hangover, 62 percent, uh, got nauseated or vomited, 58 percent, uh, been criticized by someone I know, 30 percent. Uh, now let's get into the more serious stuff. Been arrested uh, for DWI, about 2 percent, been sexually taken advantage of, 10 percent. Uh, tried to commit suicide, 1.1 percent, seriously thought about suicide, 4 percent. These, of course, are self-reported information on the National Corps Survey. But but uh, the fact of the matter is there are serious consequences mm -hmm. uh, that are related to alcohol abuse. And if you look at our uh, judicial cases on campus, uh, those incidents involving fights will once in a while not have involved alcohol. <laughs> but 90 percent of the time, alcohol was involved. And I would imagine the same is true of rape or sexual battery of some kind. Has that been your experience, Keith? Yeah, and, and most uh, – and just for our definition of the ones we respond to, uh, most of our reported sexual assaults and rapes are usually acquaintance. And you're right. It almost always have involved uh, alcohol, some form of drinking by one or both parties. Mm -hmm. And Jennifer, you want to respond to that as well because I know you, you've done a lot of work in this area. In the sex area. Yeah. Is <laughs> right. Well, well, sex and alcohol. Right. One right. of the things that we talk to students about is that generally the first time you have sex, you don't wake up that morning thinking, I think today's the day I'm going to have sex. Mm -hmm. Usually it's a period – it's a, several smaller decisions that lead up to that point. And generally one of the decisions earlier on is going to party and, and drinking. So almost always the individual says they didn't plan on having sex, that it was – it happened after a result of – Several little bad decisions coming together. It just happened. Yeah. <laughs> Last year, we talked a lot about uh, a new uh, program that freshmen were re being required to participate in. It was about a three-hour online course uh, that they had to take before they enrolled in the university. Alcohol EDU is the, is the company uh, name. And generally, I, I'm sure we had at least two or three student uh, newspaper reports about it being a boring program. And, uh, and quite honestly, uh, no single – three-hour program at the computer is going to change the world with regard to our student use of alcohol. But our follow-up data does show there was a slight increase in students of both genders who on average thought about their blood alcohol content or who choose to drink alcohol uh, – choose to drink containing uh, – beverages containing a lower alcohol concentration. Uh, knowledge pertaining to the impact of alcohol use and risk reduction increased for both men and women. Uh, women uh, increased their knowledge about BAC and physiological effects of alcohol. And there's several others. Males reported a slight increase in intention to choose a drink containing lower alcohol concentration and set personal limits on how much they would drink. Mm -hmm. Now, all of this sounds uh, silly to be talking about because those were freshmen, which means they weren't supposed to be drinking at all because they're probably all under 21. But if you really are interested in changing the culture, this is the kind of thing you get involved in. Right. And I want to ask Jennifer about that too because you deal a lot with high school age kids. But first, I want to go to the phone because we have a call. Paul, go ahead. Okay. Uh, one reason to keep a low profile is because the police will notice that you're drunk, right? But another reason to keep a low profile and not get involved in road rage is because 
even though you're excitable and angry when you're drunk, it is the case that one out of 10 or one out of 15 Hoosiers is licensed to carry a concealed weapon. And if you should practice road rage on those people, you might find yourself uh, being treated as a very bad person. If you were pounding on somebody's window yelling, I'll beat you up, I'll kill you, you could get a bullet for your head. <laughs> so I just thought I'd mention that yeah. um, it should be noticed that, that people do carry weapons and uh, people should not practice road rage on those people. Keith? Uh, yeah, that's correct. I, I would say, though, uh, most of our road rage incidents, uh, very few of them involve alcohol. It's usually people who just have anger management issues. But, but yeah, still duly noted, yeah. <laughs> people do carry weapons. But you were talking about people who are walking home and, and are involved in vandalism, I assume. Because I know we, we sometimes uh, at the newspaper will get a call from somebody saying, hey, I was just walking home. I was – I had too, way too much to drink, so I didn't want to drive. But I'm walking home, and I still get stopped. Yeah. You know, I should have just gotten in my car. Maybe I would have made it. And but your point is that if somebody's really drunk walking home, they can do a lot of other stupid things. That's correct. And and, and I talked to a lot of groups, and it was it's interesting. Most of the groups there will always be somebody that knows somebody that was doing absolutely nothing. And usually we go pull a case, and, and we meet weekly with with the dean of students, and and he can verify that no, it, the person just wasn't merely walking home. Uh, one of the examples I give since you know, we were talking about bars is I asked people in the audience, I said, how many bars are in Bloomington roughly? And they guess. And I said, how many of you been to those bars? And they'll tell me. How many people does that bar hold? And I said, if you had to give a percentage of how many people you thought were truly drunk, you know, above a point one oh, not even just above a point zero eight, and they'll usually say, it's a pretty high number. I said, so, so you're saying there could be even thousands? And they're like, oh, yeah. I said, if you look at the police spotter, are we arresting thousands of people? Absolutely not. We don't have time. These are truly people that are doing something that has drawn our attention. Mm-hmm. All right. I wanted to go back to, to Jennifer just to talk about um, – you know, Dick was talking about some progress being made on the surveys that he's seen. And I know you mentioned that you know, you're seeing some progress being made of underage, with underage drinking from a lot of the work that you've been doing. Talk about, uh, again, some of the programs with high school kids and what, what you're seeing in terms of trends. Well, it, when we, we do follow um, our data and look at it, and we do the data from 6th grade through 12th grade every other year and watch how that progresses. And 10 years ago, we were above state and national averages on absolutely everything at every grade level. Um, we have seen a shift in recent years that our 6th through 8th are below state and national averages on everything, but our high schoolers are not. Um, the two that we're above on are uh, alcohol consumption and then specifically binge drinking, um, and then marijuana use. So those are the three. Um, we have seen them go down. Uh, before, our, da- our monthly use of alcohol um, for a 12th grader used to be 58%. Now we're down to 49%. Um, and one of the things that we try to get across in messages to students is that it's really not the norm. It feels like it's the norm that everyone drinks but it's really not the norm. And, and if 49%, granted, it's 1% difference from average. <laughs> but it, it, most students don't drink on a regular basis. And that's the message that we try to convey. And that's, um, but, but you don't on the Monday after hear from the students who didn't drink. On the Monday after, you hear from the students talking about the parties that they went to. And so that's what feels like, God, everybody's drinking. And so it becomes this feeling of to be accepted into the group that I need to participate in that behavior too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk a, a little bit about the 6th to 8th grade numbers. Well, we think that's because we, there is a community, not just the life skills curriculum, but as a community, there has been a lot of effort on addressing that population. We know that it, at the end of the 8th grade year, that makes a big difference. And if you delay the onset of any kind of use, then hopefully you're going to delay the onset of any kind of damage or injury or harmful effects. And so we know life skills has been in place for 6th, 7th, and 8th, um, and we know that other after-school initiatives and other programs around the community um, in the schools and out in the agencies and in, in churches have been in place for that group. And we've tried to work more with parents at that level too. Um, so I, I think that it's been a, a lot of effort to address that group. But I think once you hit high school, particularly driving age, it opens up the doors. And we've mm-hmm. talked about the culture in this town our community, because the university has a high tolerance of alcohol use and abuse, um, and our students are not immune to that. Um, 
it's, it's a direct effect. A lot of our students have older siblings, older friends who have houses on campus, make it easy. Um, mm-hmm. There's just alcohol more readily available for our high school age students. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about access to alcohol, um, working with liquor stores, working with bars, um, working even with grocery stores, any place that sells beer. What kind of efforts do you make along those lines to make sure that the people who are selling alcohol are selling it to people who are legally able to buy it? Well, from an enforcement side, I, I would defer more towards uh, excise police. Uh, that's really their focus and they do – they're very aggressive. They do a good job. Uh, we do work with them and I, I do know they police on a regular basis, the bars, uh, the liquor stores, grocery, all of them, just the ones you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, our department does not our because we don't really typically have any bars, grocery stores in our jurisdiction. Uh-huh. But excise police does and they, they share any information with us that we need to know. So I, I don't think anybody turns a, a blind eye to those establishments and, and they have liquor licenses they don't want to lose and, mm-hmm. and they get heavy fines. So uh, – and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think there may even be uh, – not only will the individual lose their liquor license but I think they can even be subject to a criminal penalty now if they're the one who has sold it to a buddy or whatever. Uh-huh. All right. We have a phone call. It's Lois next. Lois? Hi. Um, I just wanted to weigh in on, on the age of drinking uh, legally. I graduated from IU as an undergraduate many years ago, and I went to Ohio State where the drinking age was 18 at the time. And the amount of vandalism and violence that occurred, the fighting, just blew me away. I was, you know, because there were so many younger people and more people drinking, I would really think it's a bad idea to lower the drinking age. Okay. We appreciate the call. I, we've uh, you know talked about that issue just a little bit, but we appreciate your weighing in. We have another call, and it's Bill this time. Bill? Hello there. Uh, I've been listening to your discussion, and as a uh, mental health and addiction therapist for many years, um, I have some comments. What I observed, I've, I worked in Illinois for many years, and um, but these kids start so young, age 10, they start on the pot, a lot of them, and then it is still a gateway uh, drug, although people like to argue the point. And now what I've observed in Illinois, I don't know if this is true in Indiana, that these kids now are into polysubstance abuse. They are not just using pot, alcohol, they, they move around the pills, whatever is available. And so it is a very serious um, time for our young people. I don't think there should be any drinking on campus, and, and I think it should be tight. I think perhaps making students who violate uh, go to some Al-Anon AA classes, uh, maybe even into the jail and see some of these people and the residual effects. And uh, you see some pretty sad sights that might frighten them. But intensive education is needed. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Dick, I see you nodding your head. Well, I agree with the caller. The uh, multi-substance use is an issue that we run into. And, in fact, on our campus, uh, any student uh, who is arrested or written up in our residence halls uh, is first given the opportunity to participate in our uh, alternative alcohol intervention program, which is an assessment and counseling-based program uh, to look at uh, their alcohol use patterns of alcohol use, family history uh, to try and help uh, reorient them to uh, think about alcohol and also think about the reason they're at Indiana University. And, of course, the county has its own Monroe County uh, substance abuse efforts that go on that Jennifer probably could tell you about out of the prosecutor's office where there's a a comparable opportunity for students who have been arrested. Um, I can't speak necessarily to the prosecutor-specific program, but I, I think the thing that CARES is great about is that it pulls everybody together on a common page so that it's not just IU looking at their problems and the schools looking at theirs and the prosecutor looking at theirs. Everyone's working together towards some common goals. And what I didn't mention earlier is that the CARES board receives annually – it's around $100,000 a year, sometimes more, sometimes less – that comes in from drunk driver fees. Then in turn, we use that kind of our priorities and distribute the money across the board. And that's that's some of the things that Keith had mentioned earlier is that we fund oftentimes portable breath tests and life skills workbooks and other things to help prevent the problem. 
I imagine listening uh, today, we have uh, some parents who are in town after having dropped off their children here at IU and, and hopefully sticking around and enjoying Bloomington a little bit. Um, what kind of uh, advice do you give to parents who are concerned about binge drinking or, or you know, just drinking to excess on campus? What do you tell them to, to tell their kids? Well, it, it, uh, the real issue is the value system of the, of the young uh, student, uh, the, their ability to uh, withstand peer pressure. Uh, their, and so we encourage parents to talk with their kids, talk with their kids about family values, talk with their kids about expectations with regard to alcohol, uh, talk with their kids about being safe mm-hmm. and making safe decisions. Uh, young people are going to experiment and so there is no magic bullet, of course. But uh, if at least there's some open dialogue, then maybe you uh, – uh, you don't uh, you don't have the real surprise. Uh, the previous caller mentioned uh, early drinking, and of course, the students that tend to have the most serious problems on campus were also those students who started drinking at an earlier age. Mm-hmm. They are uh, more into the alcohol culture when they get here, and they find it more readily available. Seventy some percent of our students, I think it's seventy two percent, have consumed alcohol before they arrive at IU. Mm-hmm. Those who started consuming alcohol in in the tenth grade or I should say at 10 or 11 years old, are more likely those that uh, end up uh, at Keith's attention because they've had so much to drink, they end up being taken to the hospital and uh, and police have to help them wherever they are around Mm -hmm. campus. So with parents, I think the thing you can do is uh, uh, talk with them about uh, your values, your expectations, and and encourage open and honest dialogue. Jennifer, at what age – you mentioned in the schools that you're already starting to talk about it. Pretty early elementary school. We start with life skills at sixth grade, but we do through just our regular health curriculum address issues early on. As a matter of fact, as early as kindergarten, we have in there that you don't ever touch anybody's medicine and that you don't take um, something that looks like candy from somebody's hand because an M&M could look like an Advil. Uh, And so there's pieces in our curriculum as early as kindergarten and first grade to address some of those. And then so uh, as they get older, then obviously the message gets harder and more um, concentrated. And and sixth grade is where we hit it the heaviest through seventh, eighth, um, and then again, 10th grade. One other thing I happen to think of, parents might also want to be honest with their kids about aunt so-and-so and and her problem. Occasionally when we deal with – there are genetic dispositions Mm -hmm. towards certain problems and alcoholism is one of them. And occasionally – we will find families where there's an alcohol, a history of alcoholism but the student didn't really recognize the history of alcoholism or didn't even talk about it with his parents until he was in jail actually and the parents were here for some things and then they begin to acknowledge that, well, you remember we never talked much about mm. uncle so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that maybe being honest about the, 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 the bad effects it's already had on their family could be helpful. I think in, along with that, I think there are other mental illnesses like depression and bipolar depression that students can come here. They can function quite well. But if they have a, and if they have a, but if they have a parent who has something like that, that can also lead to something like more binge drinking, more excessive behavior. Self-medicating. That's right. Keith, in the last 30 seconds, any, any message for our uh, listeners out there? Uh, no, just I guess if, if you do choose to drink, I would say do so responsibly. Otherwise, we'll end up finding you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to thank our guests today. Um, Dick McKegg, who's the dean of students at IU, Jennifer Staub, who's the president of the CARES Board, and Captain Keith Cash from the Indiana University Police Department. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.